from the smallest room in New York City comes a show that gives you a reason to live. Hey, Pete, how's it going? How are you, Pat? I'm good. I'm speaking, of course, to uh, Pete Peduccio, who is a retired Night Watch detective in NYPD. 40 years of service, and we thank you for that, Pete. Thank you, sir. Absolutely. And uh, uh, now that you're out, what's what does your does your perspective is still that of a cop, but your job is not that of a cop. And and this is recent, so how does that in feel? In some ways, it's strange. You know, I never thought. I, I just never thought I was going to leave when I did. Um, but it was a rough year, and just finally, I said, you know what? Enough stuff. Present situation. 39 years is a very long time to be a cop in New York City. It's almost unheard of. It? It's uh, rare. It's extremely rare. And uh, it was time. It was time. But now I'm on the other side of the fence. It's now you're a criminal. I am a criminal. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Like a daring cat burglar. <laughs> yeah. I can barely walk up a flight of stairs these days. But uh, No, no, I'm not a criminal. But um, you do get to take a step back and look at things a little bit differently. I will be a cop the day they plant me in the ground. Of course. That would be part of my DNA. Um, but it's different. Yeah. One thing that's different is I get to express myself a little bit more freely about certain things. Yeah, in a way that, you know, like, a, a, obviously a civil servant is, is bound not to do. Correct. Correct. So, uh, well, let's, let's, let's get started then. Uh, one man was killed, three others wounded inside a violent Brooklyn building known to be a local gambling den. Oh, my goodness. Known to be a local gambling den. The gunfire rang out uh, just after a 10 p.m. during a, a large fight in the first floor a back room of a decrepit brick building. And that's... Uh, in, in Brownsville, 1718 Hedgeman Avenue, near Osborne Street. We all know that corner, now or that area. Now, uh, when, you th- when they say a, a gambling joint, is, this, is it uh, numbers? Is it cards, dice? What are it they doing? It could be a mix of anything. Um, when I worked in that neck of the woods, there were quite a few gambling dens. Hmm. Enforcement was hands-off. Uh, one of the outgrowths of the NAP Commission back in the 70s Cops would stay like stay away from like street level gambling and stuff like that. That was handled by the public morals division, who had teams. It later became the vice uh, vice unit, vice squad. Uh, so it was a division of uh, a responsibility on that. It was yeah. It was the organized crime control bureau, whose simpler times I should say. Mm. It you had a narcotics division component, and you had the public morals division, which handled gambling, prostitution. The belief was that cops getting involved with that sort of thing, unless it was in a strictly controlled atmosphere, the belief was that you know it was always prone to uh, corruption. Prior to the Knapp Commission, there were there were some serious issues with with police corruption, with uh, gamblers and gambling syndicates. Mm-hmm. So by the time I rolled around into Brooklyn in the late 1980s, there were a lot of storefronts. So, Gen- so if you take the police off it, it actually ends up with the proliferation of the of the gambling joints. Yeah, but you know what? It was, it was one of these things where they kind of they really weren't a problem per se. Right. Uh, they generally policed themselves. The crowds were older, mm-hmm. um, not people that would normally cause problems. Okay, so you figure, okay, it's it's the kind of a vice. It's a harmless vice, and something most people want. It is something most people want, and. Within the community, these were also like social hubs. 
there were occasions where there were instances, you know, we would have to, you would have things happen at these locations, either a shooting or one particular case, a second floor location, the guy tripped out the window. He was drunk out of his mind. It was a numbers joint. Tripped out the window right in the middle of Nostrand Avenue and split his skull off. Oh, not his lucky day, I guess. No, it's not his lucky day. And it's funny because I went in. Of course, everybody runs out of the place. All the betting slips were still there. And I'm looking around, and I find a number written on the wall. And I forget if it was Mario or Carmine. Mm-hmm. And I call up. I go, oh, Carmine, what's going on? He goes, hey, who's this? He says, hey, how you doing? Detective Panuccio, 77th Precinct. And he's like, oh, God. I said, listen, no problem here. He says, you know, somebody fell out the window of your numbers joint. I says, I got to talk to the guys that were in here running the place. You know, end of story. I said, we're not here for your numbers. We're not here for any of you, whatever you're doing here. We really, not our thing. We're right. here to investigate a death. Yeah. And within a couple of hours, sure enough, two elderly guys come in. And, uh, you know, they gave us the whole story as to what happened. And, the, you know, the guy tripped. He really did trip. He did trip, yeah. Yeah, he did. We, we actually were able to track down a, a number of people to substantiate that. Okay. So... In a case like that, you know, it's really... How did he trip out the window, though? He was drunk. And the windows were actually... Uh, he had some fantastic architecture in different parts of Brooklyn. Yeah. And uh, this was a second floor second floor location with... When I say floor-to-ceiling windows, it was. Wow. Um, and this knucklehead tripped and bang, right through the window he went. Through the glass. Five o'clock in the afternoon on Nostrand Avenue. Uh, I'd say it was a 10. The Russian judges probably gave him like a 7, but uh, it was a spectacular hit. Maybe if you had a little less to drink, it could have been, uh, you know, perfect scores all around. Yeah. Then yeah. again, I think it tends to help, doesn't it? If you fall out drunk, you probably have a better chance of survival. You know, uh, you're, you're, it didn't help in this case. <laughs> How high up is this? How, uh, I forget. I'd say he's in excess of 20, 25 feet. Okay. Well. That'll do it. Yeah. The, uh, Not every time, though. No. A lot of times. Just I've most had people come down 10, 15 stories and survive. That's amazing. And they didn't weren't even crippled or anything. Nope. Nope. We had a, we had a young lady on 88th Street, Manhattan, jumped off a uh, drunk out of a bird. And when the cops broke the door down, she whipped the cop the finger, jumped over the railing. And I don't know if she got caught in cable wires or whatever it was. She came down, and they had the you know the sidewalk sheds when they doing the brickwork in the building. Mm-hmm. She hit that thing. I got there, and then, you know, I says, where's the body? And they're like, oh, she's in the hospital. I said, what do you mean she's in the hospital? She says, she's in the hospital. She's alive. We got there. She suffered a fractured ankle and then proceeded to tell every one of us to go fuck ourselves, and she wasn't talking to us. <laughs> um, well, I mean, you know, she's she's invincible, apparently, so why why wouldn't she... Mouth off, I guess. Right? Yeah, she was she was just just an unpleasant person. But I wonder what that feels like to fall that way. You know what I mean? Like I, I understand a lot of people jump off a bridge, like uh, and if they survive, they say the instant that they jump off, they feel regret that they did it. The instant yeah, change their mind. Yeah, but it's obviously too late. But for her, it didn't seem to make any sort of change at all. Uh, no, no. Well, she was still boxed. Um, 
Oh. But after that, it didn't sober her up to fall. No, for after that, she was her life was going to get shitty right after that because they put you in the mm. psych ward, and then you get a few days to chill down in there. And, and it ain't your choice, right? No, you got no choice in the matter in that one. There was one guy who, uh, and this wasn't too long ago, he police talked him down, you know, from a ledge, pulled him off, you know, and and he went to that, as you say, you know, and then the day he got out, he just went and jumped off a different building. So, I mean, some people really are determined, I guess. And they're going to do it. And, hey, you know, okay. Uh, the biggest suicide bridge is the GWB, I understand. A lot of people go off the GWB. Yeah, why is that, you think? Yeah, it's easy access, easy right. parking, uh, plenty of parking, especially depending on what time of the day and night you go there. But you have the walkways. Um, we get a, quite a few people going off the bridge. Right. I mean, um, and the river is pretty wide at that point. So if you go off in the middle of the river, it could be a while before you uh, come up. Okay. Yeah. The surface tension is obviously going to kill you. Yeah. How high is that? Um, it's up there. I think it might be ballpark around 180 feet. Jocelyn Ortega is the name of the woman on the Upper West Side. We were talking before the show. I just had to say it when I remembered it. An evil. Foul, mm-hmm. yeah, psycho nanny, psycho nanny, yeah. a horrible, horrible story. She, yeah, she was a very strange woman who had become convinced that her employers were taking advantage of her, and that she was—I uh, I don't know—held captive is exactly the word, but she was, she was suddenly very unhappy with her employers, and they were making her do stuff that they, you know, that wasn't really part of her job initially, but I think they were doing it so they could keep her and keep her employed, you know? And, and so it sounds if like there was a shift as the kids were becoming older, then, uh, you know, and she decided to, you know, murder them in the bathtub, two kids. Uh, and uh, there was a third kid that was not with her at the time, which is, I suppose... Uh, the well, two it is, because she would have killed that child yeah, also. Yeah, it's the only light there, yeah. And so now they have that, and... Uh, but anyway, Nan, uh, Jocelyn Ortega, yeah, I, I don't know. I think she was eventually sentenced. She was, she was, you know, sane enough to stand trial, and I don't believe, uh, I, I, I simply can't recall what, what her eventual thing was. But we were back in Brooklyn. Let's go back to Brownsville. Uh, we have one killed, three wounded, and it was a shooting inside this local gambling den after a fight. There was a big fight inside uh, the, uh, it's about 10 p.m., now, a man in his 30s who was shot in the chest died, and three others were struck by bullets. They were 32, 31, and 44, hospitalized. They're in stable condition. Investigators believe the shooting was sparked over gambling. <laughs> Generally, <laughs> that's what causes fights in gambling locations. It's yeah, Everybody was winning, I guess, right? And they were like, who's winning more? I, I, I don't think that was it. Uh, it must have been. It's always a rut. Gambling it does bring out some emotions. If you've lost money, you know. I, I've lost money in, uh, playing poker, but I never bring more than I, I never bring enough money. I don't know if I have enough money to cause me to to shoot somebody over losing it or, you know, maybe. Yeah, you know, I blame some, it on poor management. Uh, right, poor management. You know, we're not privy in the stories to what the gambling, what type of gambling they were. Generally, rolling the dice, very big. Um, like craps, right? Uh, yeah. Rolling, you know, rolling the bones, as we used to say. Well, you know where that phrase comes from. The actual bones. That's what the first dice were made out of. They were made out of bones, but they were initially made out of just sticks because they would take sticks and throw them down to divine the weather. And that, w- and then they started gambling on the weather. And then eventually that became dice and cards. 
Now, Pat, I have a head full of useless information, and I did not know that. Well, thank I hope you, you got that. room for one more thing. Thank you. No, there's always room for more useless information. <laughs> yeah, so they were always rolling the dice. and uh, it, it could be a number of things. I mean, some of these places are set up to do numbers, uh, which is still a very popular game. Now, numbers is something that like doesn't exist outside of big cities, as far as I know. I don't think so. I mean, um, it, how is it? It's like a, lo- a local lottery. It's a local lottery. It used to be, it depends. I think Brooklyn pays off 500 to 1. Manhattan pays off 600 to 1. I don't know the why it was like that, but it's been like that since the invention of the lotto, uh, lottery. 500 to 1. So you bet a dollar, then you, get, you 500. get 500 back. But you can go in and bet a nickel. Okay. And do people do that? Sure they do. Nickels, okay. quarters, dimes. Wow. Um, it's been a mainstay. For no a, amount too small, huh? For the, they'll, nope. they'll cover that bet. Okay, write something down. Five cents for Mr. Osborne or whatever, and and there you go. I mean, th- this could have been over a... Uh, you're, you're given a slip. Um, Which yeah. cost a nickel to make the slip, probably. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's it, ridiculous. It, a but, nickel? You know, that's old school, I old believe school stuff. Well, and, yeah. I mean, it's 500 to 1. If you hit. Yeah. And you can play combinations of numbers. Um, you could, you know, say you like the number 555. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, no, wait a minute. That's bad. Uh, one, two, three. You can play a <laughs> three, two, one. Uh-huh. There's a whole host of combinations you can play. Well, yeah. And and so you can play it backwards, forwards, and it costs you more. Okay. Oh, yeah. So I, the number, this is the interesting number. Yeah. The number is determined. That's what I was about to ask. Usually. By the last three digits of the total take at a designated racetrack in New York City, it used to be Aqueduct, I, I believe, at the time. I gotcha. So if so the total they, take at the the track that day was two million seven hundred forty thousand and three hundred and twenty one bucks, the number that day would be three, three two, two one three two one. Um, but you have people that go in, they'll play ten cents, quarter, fifty cents, and they'll play the same number for years. Years and years and years. Figuring eventually, right? Eventually it's going to hit. Law of averages. Well, so, uh, although I don't, I mean, it's completely random and shit, so, but the that take. Not always completely random. Um, I'll tell you why. Dutch Schultz, back in the 1930s, had a guy, his name was Abadabba Berman. <laughs> Abadabba Berman was a mathematical genius. He really wasn't a gangster, but was one of these guys that was savvy enough and he would make other bets that he could change the take. But this was all based on a whole system of mathematical calculations. It wasn't like one bet. And this guy really, really put some thought into this. He would bet a certain bet at the track, at, at Aqueduct. Yeah, or, or with a bookie somewhere, or whatever it was he did. Right, but, but it, to change the, the take for that track that day. He yeah. could actually change, and, and he could yeah, the man was a, a manipulate absolute, the last three numbers of the take. That's yeah, incredible. The man was an absolute whiz with numbers and percentages. A whiz. He, he wound up getting shot to death with Duck Schultz. In <laughs> Newark, New Jersey, in nineteen actually, right around this time of the year, nineteen thirty-five. Wow! And you remember this, huh? I had the foot post that day. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane! Wow, I just the math that it would take to do that is like I, I can't even believe it. I, I know. Back in the day, my grandfather had run-ins with Dutch Schultz. He had run-ins when he was a police officer. He was a detective. So wait, you, you're you're second generation then? I'm actually third generation. No kidding. 
he had run-ins with a lot of the guys like Legs Diamond, and uh, there was some tough detectives back then. Um, Legs uh, Diamond, who was that? Big-time gangster in New York City. Uh-huh. Um, he was always getting shot at, and he was a dick. Just to, to put it, he was a guy that all the other gangsters didn't like. And uh, But you had these characters running around back then, and New York City, the police department at the time, had a uh, police commissioner by the name of Louis Valentine. Mm-hmm. who was very honest, incorruptible guy that ran the police department for about 15 years at that time. And he was the kind of guy that would take no guff from gangsters and had no problems with shoot first, ask questions later. Perfect. So they had detectives. He's one of those now. Yeah, we do. We do. But he was a guy that would send detectives out, and they would come across these gangsters and then proceed to beat the balls off them uh, just for being on the street. Was it lawful? I don't know. Was it nice? No, probably not. This was from 1934 to 45. He was under uh, LaGuardia. Yes. He's actually buried three graves away from my grandfather in St. John's Cemetery in Queens. No kidding. Yes. Louis Valentine. St. John's Cemetery. Is that the? Is that really big? Is it a very large? It's big. It's a, a very the one big. You can see all those graves, like when you fly in and you see uh, these. Queens, New York, is has more dead people living it than live people because of the cemeteries. My God! And there's a lot of people in Queens. Yes, it's the most populous borough, isn't it? I yeah. Well, there's Brooklyn. more dead people buried there than live ones. Wow, and yeah, that's diversity for you. When the you, dead population is, is when you huge. go to St. John's Cemetery. Uh, on Long Woodhaven Boulevard in Queens. You go into the mausoleum section, and you'll see all the famous gangsters of yesteryear, all the Italian guys. No uh, kidding. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like Legs Diamond. I don't well, know where Legs Italian Diamond guy. is, but I'm he's talking... A, he's an Irish guy. But the uh, Italian guys, Frank Costello, John Gotti... This was uh, during the Murder, Inc. days uh, that he was uh, around. Which... The Murder, Inc. guys all came from Brownsville, Brooklyn. The area where this shooting occurred uh-huh. and back in the 20s and 30s was a Jewish stronghold. And some truly lowbrow, disreputable brutes came out of Brownsville back yeah. at that time. Unlike now, where it's uh, fully gentrified. It's getting there. It's getting there. Yeah. It's, I'm not kidding you. It, it's, I was told Brown, Brownsville's, now East New York, I was told, would never, ever gentrify. It was impossible. There were parts of East New York, believe it or not, that hung on. Uh, Mike still have friends that live over there. Um, they've been there multi-generations. Uh, really? Italian Italians families. and Irish and Germans hanging in there in the eastern, cent- eastern end of, we call it the 75th precinct. Oh, oh right, right, the 7-5. The 7-5. Yeah. But it. Did you see it, that movie, The Seven Five? No, Michael Dowd is a piece of shit. He's just a, you know, I've heard a couple of things. I've listened to him on some. Don't like him. Right. Never will. Not uh, interested. Not interested. Didn't get enough jail time. Yeah, but twelve years wasn't enough, huh? No. Because uh, no. he, it was his fault that a cop got killed, right? In a way. Uh, you know what? There's a lot of stories with I, I. I don't know for sure. Right, I get you. I don't know. I and I've really, the time frame when I was working in the next precinct over in the 77th precinct, uh-huh. which wound up having its own major issues prior to the Michael Dowd stuff in East New York. Uh, there was the Buddy Boy scandal in the 77th precinct, 
Buddy Boy. And um, different crew. Um, and it was it the similar thing with drugs? Uh, it was one small crew of cops on the late tours that were going out doing... Uh, they were robbing drug dealers. Yeah, okay. Uh, Which is what Michael Dowd was doing, yeah. Michael Dowd, I... I've, and then selling the coke. They'd take Michael the coke. Dowd was a step up from what these guys were doing. Michael Dowd was an evil, evil guy. Yeah, I mean, he... he, he well, I mean, I've met him, and uh, I, I've spoken to him a couple of times. He, he was on Crime Report a couple of times. And he's... Uh, I'll say this... He knows how to step on a punchline, you know that he does know. I, I, and I'm not, I'm not. That's not in judgment of him or anything like that. I certainly would fear him. <laughs> I mean, all due respect, you know, I don't. Uh, He's a bad guy. Yeah, yeah. I got no reason to uh, to, to tangle with him. Uh, but uh, but it's interesting what you said. Michael Dow was a problem that was brewing for a long time. Uh huh. And everybody talks about the blue wall silence, and and, and it, it it's not that. People, cops, people within the job, supervisors, were actually telling internal affairs. Back at the time, it was the Field Investigations Unit, uh, Field Internal Affairs Unit, FIAU. And they were saying, this is a bad guy, real bad guy. Uh-huh. It wasn't like they didn't know. And it, it depends on which line of bullshit you want to believe now. Uh, rumor has it that Ben Ward was extremely embarrassed by the Buddy Boys thing and wanted the Dowd thing to go away. Gotcha. Um, There was a guy, uh, guy's name was Trimboli, Joe Trimboli, who he was after Dowd for many years. And I don't know if he was exactly supported in his efforts. Was he internal affairs or something? He was the Brooklyn Northfield internal affairs guy. Um, But Dowd was a... Not a good guy. And there's a lot of people that, to this day, trust me, do not like Michael Dowd. Well, I know. I have I've, it, no no police officer I've talked to has spoken well of and, Dowd. And it's got nothing to do with the fact that he became a rat. It, it, it's got to do with it. He, he's a dirty, drug-dealing scumbag. And uh, he, he's, he's on the other team. Well, he's, he was on the other team pretty much from day one, but this is a guy that gets up. Um, it was the Marlin Commission. And, you know, they trot this guy out. You know, not my... The Marlin Commission at the time was at the... It was, it turns out I wound up becoming neighbors with Milton Marlin many years later. His name's Marlin? Milton. Milton Marlin. Milton Marlin. Marlin? M-O-L-L-E-N. Oh, Marlin. Okay. And I wouldn't talk to him for many years. And I'd see him in the elevator, and somebody had told him I was a cop. I got to know him the last few years of his life, and I would speak to him. It, it turns out he was a very interesting man, very interesting. He was also a B-24 pilot in World War II. He had a pretty exceptional combat record. But I got to know Marlon, and... Uh, you know, the Marlin Commission at the time, it was pushed by Dinkins, you know, let's smear the cops. And they dragged a couple of people out that were just, you know, reprobates, uh, Michael Dowd being one of them. But um didn't work because Dinkins lost the election anyway. Okay. Oh, so this this is much more just, modern day. Oh, yeah, this was 92, 93. 
formerly known as the City of New York Commission to investigate allegations of police corruption and the anti-corruption procedures of the police department. That is a long, long title for a thing. The About New- the only thing it highlighted was how fucked up internal affairs was at the time. Oh, how so? It was, it was just not a... They weren't getting the cream of cream of the crop in there to, to begin with. There were also a lot of people there that themselves were caught in different problem situations. Well, what better place to be than internal affairs, and right? they would have to put them somewhere, and they cooperated, whatever it was they did, or, you know, and then these people would spend the remainder of their careers <laughs> Kidding. working in internal affairs. Well, w- was the theory, like, how, you know, sometimes they'll catch somebody and go, like, you're a genius, we want to know, hey, help us, you know, do law enforcement, or was it just like, you know, like, we like the well, cut of your jib, you know, you're one of us. Once you get one but one person there's kind of crooked, they're going to sort of attract that. Generally what would happen a lot of times is that the people they did catch would then try and go out and ensnare others. Sometimes people that had nothing to do with it or just bullshit allegations and, you know, something to, I guess, uh, show their worthiness. They're, uh, you know, just... Not not a good business. And uh, Wait, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know if I understand. You mean like when they're once they're caught, they would try and they would try and turn them. And sometimes you get uh, people that you know you're gonna go out and they're gonna start talking to guys in locker rooms and you know uh, uh, trying to ensnare other people into their web. Right. Um, sometimes entrapment kind of a deal, huh? Is it entrapment? I don't know. I, I mean, if you're, a you're, corrupt, giving, giving if you're a corrupt cop and now you start getting involved with another guy that's a corrupt cop, you know, you, you get what's coming to you. You're, you're, you. The opportunity is presented to you to uh, to do this. And then, like, it's kind of like, uh, you know, when they have the, the people who find a 13-year-old girl who's dying to have anal sex online, you know, and she wants you to bring a, a six-pack of hard lemonade and a pizza. And well, that's like up. Joe Biden's friend up in Massachusetts last week that got caught, except it was a 14-year-old boy. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he was photographed with Biden at a an event. And uh, you didn't see that? I didn't see it. I know. No, no. Yeah, what, do you think? what do you think I am, some kind of right-wing wingnut uh, conspiracy theorist or something? I only read uh, CNN and, uh, you know. <laughs> no, I, did, I missed it. There's so much to catch. We'll discuss later. It's, so uh, sees dirty all over. I know that. You know, uh, they, when they get to the bottom of Ukraine, it'll be a, a cold day in hell, probably. Uh, Malin was appointed in June 1992, and by then uh, Dinkins uh, was the mayor, uh, and he was there to investigate corruption in New York City Police Department. Is this uh, at all based on the Washington Heights? Because uh, there were, there were. I remember. Uh, the, they, the broader a- allegation of corruption being out there. What had happened was you had the 7-7 priests and crew go down in 86. There was an allegation of people in the 73rd precinct, where they called the Morgue Boys, because they used to hang out in an old abandoned morgue there. That's Brownsville. And an old abandoned morgue. Yeah. Just to hang out. Well, they I don't working. know whatever nefarious shit they were doing. Oh, there, nefarious They used to shit. meet up uh, you know, at the morgue. More. Um, and that was a particular case where other people got dragged into this. Mm-hmm. They really had nothing to do with it. Right. And their lives were, you know, careers were put on hold and a lot of nonsense. Because these things eventually, they sometimes turn into these witch hunts 
where people just get dragged in for, for complete nonsense. As we used to call it, white socks bullshit. Okay. Uh, you're not supposed to wear white socks in your uniform. Oh, God. oh okay, guy. Yeah. So ticky tack calls. Uh, a lot of a lot of. Uh, but at the time, the Morg boys were cooking around, uh, moving around. You had Dowd and his crew in the 75th precinct, and they were kind of intermingled at some points too, I believe. So this was the backdrop of what went on prior to the uh, the whole Morg boys thing. Uh huh. I'm, I'm sorry. Prior to the Mullen, Mullen Commission. Mullen Commission. Mullen was an old school guy. This is a guy that was floating around New York City government. You know, in the courts and as a politician since the early 1950s. Oh, uh, yeah. He, he he was tight with Dinkins. Um, he was he, once I got to know him, he was a very interesting character. And so you, but generally cops were not fans, right? Because he's investigating corruption. He probably was a bit of a pain in the dick. Uh, well, it's funny because when I first time I came across him in my elevator, he looked at me, and he had a little bit of a smile on his face. And he's like, good morning. And I looked at him, and I said, you talking to me? <laughs> and, uh, you know, it was just, just the two of us <laughs> in the elevator. And what's funny is, um, as years go by, I ran into, other, ran into another old time and told me, he says, you know what, you should talk to the guy. He's actually not a bad guy. Uh, you know, when you're young, you don't always realize, look at the big picture. But it was an older police boss said to me, hey, listen. He says, talk to Milty. He says, I'm going to tell you something. You'd be surprised. Um, he's not this anti-cop, you know, guy that you think he is. Um, and you know what? He was right. He was a man that believed in good Policing, honest policing. Mm -hmm. The Marlin Commission, though, that was it was political theater in, in an election year. Oh, um, they they scraped the barrel. They brought a few people out. Well, the conclusion, if, if of the, the conclusion of it was was actually more than anything was the revamp internal affairs. Right. Well, um, according to uh, to this, uh, this is this quotes the conclusion. Today's corruption is not the corruption of NAP commission days. Corruption then was largely corruption of accommodation of criminals and police officers giving and taking bribes, buying and selling protection. Corruption was, in its essence, consensual. Today's corruption, the, the, it, it concludes, is characterized by brutality, theft, abuse of authority, and active police criminality. Was he off? Uh... Not really. Um, to be honest, no, not really, because what had happened, and it's going to spring up again and again. There's always going to be some guy that thinks he's doing this the first time or inventing the wheel. Mm -hmm. And at that time, what had happened, there was a little cruise would pop up in different precincts across the city. It was an issue in the 30th precinct. Um, it was an issue... Mm, pretty much it was, I believe it was the 30th precinct at that time in Manhattan. But um, and, and were, they, were the sort of like crimes that they would do basically the same everywhere? Crimes of opportunity. They would, Robbing drug dealers or just a variety of things? Uh, it was mostly, you know, stealing stuff when they go on a job or, or robbing a drug dealer. Um, and it wasn't even to the level of like the shit that Dowd was doing in Brooklyn. 
Oh. Well, yeah, 30, 30th Precinct in West Harlem. And uh, that's, uh, I, I assume, kind of a a reasonably high crime uh, area, I would, I would. Yeah, back then it was an extremely high crime area. Right. And what it was, you know, when Bratton marched in there and, you know, it, it, let's put it this way. It wasn't a surgical strike. It was a carpet bombing. And anybody and everybody that could, they could nail on anything was suspended, dragged through the mud, and, you know. There were some bad operators at the time. There were some guys up there that were doing things that were bad people. Don't get uh, me wrong. Yeah. It was a small number of them. And, uh, and but, but the carpet bombing took out a lot of... Oh, yeah. 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 Anybody... White Sox shit. Yeah, it was a shit bomb that went off and everybody got hit. I think it was around 15 to 20 people were either arrested, suspended, transferred... In the Buddy Boys case, in the 7-7 precinct, they transferred the, almost the entire command. Um, I mean, gone. One day you're here, the next day you're gone. And what, is, it, you know, is that such a punishment, though? You know, yeah, it was. Out of the 77th to be transferred, yeah, where could you possibly go that would be worse? Because I'll tell you what, you actually had a lot of great cops there. Honest, hardworking cops. They liked working in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And they did a disservice to the people in that community because there was actually, you know, granted, you had a couple of bad guys running around in the late tour, but there were also long ties with people in the community and that got along fairly well with the cops. And uh, But to, to come in and just take 250 people, boom, and then you get scattered across the universe... Now, of course, you wind up in a new command at the opposite end of the city, and people say, oh, he's from the 77th precinct. You know, you get the stigma attached to you. You did nothing wrong. Right. Uh, and Ben Ward, his next pronouncement after that was, every year we're going to transfer 20% of the police department. Doesn't matter what command you're in. 20% are getting transferred. Now, what's the point of that? Well, it sounded like a good idea to him at the time. Just to move people around and prevent people from getting too familiar with their surroundings. Well, that resulted in probably one of the epic slowdowns of all time. Uh, Cops went dead. Uh, Because they had a 20% chance of being transferred. They're like, it sucks. Well, I was in narcotics at the time and a very arrest-oriented unit. And what happens? You know, all of a sudden, Manhattan at that time would bang out close to 100,000 arrests a year, just in Manhattan. Mm. And I don't think 25 or 30 people were arrested in Manhattan that week, and it was only absolutely because (laughs) they had to be arrested, probably for a homicide or doing some ridiculous shit. That is an epic slowdown. Oh, my God. After five days... Uh, they threw in the towel, and they said, no, maybe that wasn't a good idea. Wow. That is solidarity in, in effect. That's, I mean, they must have been very proud, you know, that that occurred. You know, the powers that be were pissed. Of course. The, you know. But the, cop, the rank said, and file, yeah. We had it. This is enough. Enough is enough. No, that's, well, it's, I mean, and again, I guess I just don't understand the hardship of a transfer, especially if you don't particularly like where you're working. But I suppose that if you're, you know, wherever you are, you want to stay there. I'm going to tell you something. You would be surprised. Some of the toughest precincts in this city, guys stay there for long periods of time. Maybe not so much today. There's a lot more movement within the job today than there was years ago. Uh-huh. You have camaraderie. You work with the same people. Um 
you'd be surprised. And I mean, in some tough houses, the guys should stay there 20, 25, 30 years. And cops uh, probably like being busy. Yeah, they did. Yeah. They did. Henry Winter was the central figure of that, uh, of that buddy boy scandal I'm seeing in 77. Did you know Henry Winter? Uh, no, Henry, Henry was gone. Um, before I got there, right. Henry and uh, I forget his partner's name. Uh, it was Tony, and they were well known in the neighborhood. Henry was known as Blondie, and Henry wound up becoming a crackhead and hung himself in his closet some years later. Oh my God! Um, Long fall from being an honest cop to a tough cop to a dead guy who's a crackhead. Yeah, yeah, a lot of guys. That moved in that circle with Henry. There were some people that wound up doing some heavy jail time, uh, but Henry and his partner were the two worst, and they wound up skating on it. Henry skated. Yeah, I'll be damned. Well, why the name Buddy Boys? Where did that come from? I think it had to do with one cop calling another guy, "Yo, Buddy Boy," uh, and, and it just caught was, on. That was the name that stuck. It says he was banished to uh, the 77th Precinct when he, uh, after he became a tough cop who took the law into his own hands. Banished is the word they, that's, that's used here. The Alamo was referred to. Yeah, it was it was a tough place back in the day. Um, it says it was, it was a Brooklyn dumping ground for department disciplinary problems. Uh, is that is that a fact, or, is, or, or, or am I reading into, or, or am I reading somebody who's creating a drama that doesn't exist? I got there. Just after they swept out, swept the house. Now, I was not in patrol. I was in the detective squad. Uh At that time, uh, usually it was the 75th precinct would lead the city with the most homicides or the 34th precinct. There was a constant neck and neck every year. Was it Washington Heights? Washington Heights. They would consistently bang out 100 to 125 homicides. Now the seventy seventh well, precinct. Would that's bang two out. Pre- two precincts that that basically would account for the whole all of the murders in in a typical year. Now running yes. up to yeah. Now the seventy seventh precinct was actually about I think a mile and a half long, a mile wide, small command, and we would bang out eighty to ninety homicides a year. The seventy fifth precinct was literally five or six times the size of the seventy seventh precinct. But you also had the Fountain Avenue dump. It had a big land mass. Uh-huh. Um, but you had other places. In between, you had the 73rd Precinct, which I've always said that if I used to say the 73rd Precinct was the asshole of the world, and if you're going to give the planet an enema, that's where the hose would go. That was truly nothing. There was nothing redeeming in that entire precinct. Um Hmm. One without a doubt, bar none, I would say probably one of the toughest precincts in New York City to work. That's saying a lot. Junkyards, housing projects, burned out buildings. One good thing they had was Coney Island Joe's hot dogs on Conduit Avenue. It was a great hot dog spot. And I just wanted to see like if they have a map here so I could understand where that is, but you could probably describe it as well as I can look at it. It's a shithole. It's just nothing <laughs> you just really you know. I will tell you this. Some of the best cops you have ever met on the planet, okay, came out of the 73rd. Some of the best detectives I ever worked with came out of, as we used to call it the University of Brooklyn North. Um, uh. Some of the best detectives and cops were in Brooklyn North, 73rd, 75th, 77th, 8th uh. Free. Uh-huh. Um, 
Rickman than some of the worst. I'm back in the 80s, 90s. That was tough. I only spent a couple of years there, and I moved back over to Manhattan. Um, I, the, so the best detective training, bar none, I received in the 77th Detective Squad. The uh, the detectives I work with were outstanding, and, and you know, you really didn't have time for bullshit. There were that many homicides and shootings. Shootings were off the charts. And, you know, you would sit in the station house at night and you could hear the gunshots going off all around you. Um, hence the name Almo. That was a very long, stretched out precinct. The western end of the precinct was on Flatbush. The border was on Flatbush Avenue which has always hung in there. It's always been a pretty good neighborhood down that. The gentrification process now is straight up right through the 77th precinct. Well, the murders are down 81.7% as of 2019 from 1990. Give them some time. Uh, and uh, 40 years. I mean, yeah, it's down 81 point. Man, that's pretty good, right? That's very good. And uh, murders are up this year over last year there, though, however, by 10, 21 this year so far. And year-to-date was 11 so that's about 91% more over last. But still, you, you put 21 against uh, murders in 1990. 60, I, I guess, uh, is, the, is the year date. The year to date. Yeah, well, I mean, would that be 60 for the year, do you think? Well, we're, we're late in the year, so it's kind of hard to say. I don't think the they're line. at 60. But it was 60 for 90, is what I'm saying. Yeah, that, that, would, that was actually a good year. 77th precinct, yeah. 74 in 1993. And well, this is 73rd precinct. Oh, okay. Not to confuse anybody, but I'm looking at the asshole of the. Well, (laughs) I'll tell you what, probably by that time, they may have all killed each other. Um, (laughs) They went down considerably from 93 to 98, down to 26 murders. Well, that's because in 1994, Giuliani came in Mm -hmm. and says, all right, funny games are over. Right. That's it. We're taking guns. We're taking guns. Guns yeah. took came and once you started cracking the whip, uh, people realized no, I just can't carry guns anymore. And it will happen in gambling places sometimes, apparently, because uh, that's what uh, that's what we're seeing here. They always gamble inside. Now back to uh, we're back in Brooklyn now at the, in Brownsville one seven one eight, where uh, yeah, a fifty year old local resident wished to remain anonymous. He said it was a well known spot for gamblers. They always gambled. They always gambling inside. Said the man, who also identified himself as a gambler. Day and night, they be gambling. Dice. They play poker and. The CeeLo. I don't even know. What, I, I've heard the expression. I, uh, I don't exactly know what CeeLo is. I only is. know him as the singer, you know. The, well, I know that guy. That's um, all I know. C, he's probably, uh, you know, clearly they've named a gambling game after him, right? Um, CeeLo, yeah. Generally, that's when you're going to get problems with card games. Uh, you know, who's cheating? Who's doing what? But believe it or not, most of those places don't generate a lot of problems. You know, we, yeah, people and, know they're there, and not, you know, should we put, you know, are we going to launch enforcement efforts against them? Because I, I don't know. One of the things generally in those locations, especially, you know, when it's all locals and stuff, they don't tolerate much bullshit in there either. They don't mm-hmm. want people in there to high or they're, you know, drunk out of their mind. 
but because people are going to be bringing guns in that they can't stop. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, you can put security on the door, and uh, Do they but serve? you got to remember, most of these people in these clubs, mm-hmm. they generally know each other, or they're, they're familiar with each other, and uh-huh. it's sort of like a community hub. See, don't necessarily need them, yeah, overly big security thing. So uh, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate. Um, in the meantime, <laughs> yeah. In the meantime, yeah. <laughs> so it's what's unfortunate you say? It's unfortunate that you have this happen here. every once in a while. It's gonna. I I, I've I don't know the, the backgrounds of the people involved. Yeah, I would. What's What's funny is reading a New York Times account of it and seeing the way they, uh, you know, uh, Mr. Johnson then pulled out a, you know, large revolver. Yes, and proceeded to aerate the victims' heart and lung groups. (laughs) Fired four times into the chest of Mr. Robinson, who lay on the floor. But CeeLo, by the way, is a gambling game played with three six-sided dice, and there's not one standard set of rules, but there's some constants that hold true. No matter what rules you go and buy. Well, that's always going to lead to a problem. Mm -hmm. The name comes, but they've probably got their house rules. The name comes from the Chinese, uh, Siwulu. Meaning four, five, six, and in America it is still called. Oh, I get that's why that's why it's called Silo. Silo, so it's Siwulo. Siwulo, four, five, six. The three dice game roll off, and by several alternate spellings as well as simply dice. Sometimes just called dice. So it's also called uh, blah, 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 blah in China. And the constants include the number of dice used, which is always three. All rules describe uh, certain winning combinations that can be ruled. Four, five, six is always treated as a winning combination for the first player who rolls it. Though in some variants, without a banker, it may be possible for several players to make a winning combination requiring a second shootout. So you can... No it, pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> Besides the winning combinations, all CeeLo rules include, uh, well, let me see, certain roles establish a point, and there are situations where two more players will roll and compare their points to determine a winner. So, uh, you know, I, I, I suppose uh, there's, there's... Just as an aside on this whole thing, yeah. I would say if you look please at the backgrounds of the people that were victims here, mm-hmm. I'm going to say that there's probably not much prior criminal involvement. I don't think that, I, I would imagine most of these guys that were in there were neighborhood guys, working guys. Um, they always gambling inside. That's all. Well, this guy know. himself identified himself as a gambler, so it's like it's not something anybody feels you know particularly bad about. It's not it's not a whole bunch of uh, yeah hardcore. No, crim- but I don't think hardcore yeah, criminals it, are out doing hardcore crime. Exactly. Well, yeah. exactly. Exactly. I probably a I'll tell you what, probably not a bad bunch of guys to hang out with. I, I wouldn't doubt it. I wouldn't. <laughs> you want to go down there one night, the two of us? Why not? I, I probably because they're they, going to go, hey, there's a cop here. <laughs> as soon as they take the crime scene tape down. but uh, <laughs> Will they reopen, you think, in the same location? Or they, they might. Move? They might. Um I'm sure there's another one close by. He says Friday, Saturday night. You can't even walk inside. It's so crowded. Wow. I think that's also a point. I'm surprised they haven't closed them down on the... Well, Mr. CeeLo, now that he's giving these interviews in the paper, what's going to happen now, I can guarantee you there will be an enforcement effort there. Um, you know, really? It's, oh, a guarantee. Oh, for COVID, you mean? 
Oh, it won't be for COVID. Um, <laughs> he said the stakes range from as low to a, as a few bucks to thousands of dollars. No, no arrests were made in the shooting, and they didn't uh, immediately have any suspects in the shooting. So that's a uh, where do you even start? Who do you start to talk to in a situation like that? Whoever survived, um, whoever. How do you find them? Well, they're the ones in the hospital. Oh, I see. That's right. Okay, right. The three in stable condition. I'm sure they were probably, you give it a little bit of time. I can, knowing the caliber of detectives that you have out there, they have contacts within the community. Mm -hmm. They're going to help them out. Who hangs Um, out here. Yeah, I wouldn't go buy a newspaper article about what exactly the cops know and don't know. Um, Personally, for me, it's always a lot easier to just say, no, we have nothing. Sure. All right. Yeah. We got nothing. We got nothing. Because well, meanwhile, yeah, we might have a whole lot. What but we're just not going to tell you. Yeah. Right. And when you got an arrest, then you got something. Exactly. And what good does it do to tell the newspaper? Yeah. What where you're at? Yeah, I understand. Yeah. I, I'm not a big fan of them releasing too much information to the news. Right. Never have been. It, it creates problems. It, then you will find yourself actually in competition with certain news reporters that are out there trying to. Uh, talk to people trying to solve the crime. Exactly. Yeah, um, no, is that's not welcomed. I would assume that's gonna that's gonna spook everybody. It's it can only do harm. It, yeah, and, and what you'll find here is I think I think there will probably be a fair amount of input from different people in the community. Um, this is not a bunch of like total hardcore thugs standing on the corner. You know, selling drugs probably won't be a revenge killing on this guy or anything like that. Well, that you don't know. Really? You don't know. I mean, people's tempers flare, and, you know, that's pending. Like I said, we don't have enough information yet. That's always a concern uh, in the police department is a retaliation-type shooting. Uh, You get it with the gangs. It's, it's, It's a major problem with gangs. Um, well, that yeah, with gangs, yeah, I was thinking these that might... people do not sound like gangbangers, right? Legs Diamond, by the way, thirty-four years old when he died. He's originally from Philly, and uh, yeah, he was. They uh, shot him on numerous occasions. He was shot, shot at. He passed out drunk in a roadhouse, roadhouse hotel up near Albany, New York, mm-hmm. and uh, he was laying there peacefully. Buzzed out of his bird, sleeping, and they blew his brains out. Huh. Well, I guess they got a really clear shot at the clay pigeon. The clay pigeon, yes, that was what I was looking for. The clay pigeon. Uh, I don't know if a lot of people came to his funeral either. He was kind of like really despised. Thirty-four years old. He didn't have. Uh, yeah. Well, obviously, there's so many attempts made on his life. It says between 1916 and 1931, when he was actually done in. Towards the uh, around middle of uh, December, nineteen thirty-one. Uh, what kind of crime would he be a bootlegger? They I were suppose. bootleggers. Yeah. Bootleggers, gamblers, nightclubs. Uh, Diamond's nemesis, Dutch Schultz, remarked to his own gang, "Ain't there nobody that can shoot this guy so we don't bounce back?" <laughs> man, oh man! And it's the Irish. Uh, the Irish mafia was. I mean, that's that's where Joe Kennedy made his money. That's where we got the Kennedys. You know, off of uh, that, uh, whatever amendment it was. 19th, I think. I yeah, forget. that ended drinking or, or the manufacture of booze. 21st, I forget. And you're, you're probably, your grandfather was involved with some enforcement there, I suppose, if he was in New York City. Yeah, the 
I don't know for sure. Yeah. Um, he went into the detective bureau at a pretty early age. Um, Your dad was a detective? No, no, my father wasn't, but my two uncles, uh, sons of my grandfather, they both became uh, police officers, detectives, uh-huh. sergeant. What makes a good detective? I would think you would want to be observant. I would think you'd want to be, um, you know, like uh, I always obviously laugh. intelligent, Be- right? I mean, people what, always tell me, "Oh, I want to be a detective," but I just don't want to do all that stuff that the cops got to do. You know, the uniform stuff. Well, here's a newsflash: good detectives are the guys that start their career. They're out there locking people up. Mm-hmm. They're doing their job. They learn how to talk to people. You, um, you're a hands-on kind of guy. It takes a lot of drive. It takes a lot of determination. The detective bureau today is quite a bit different. There's much more reliance now on technology and computers. I used to tell some of the younger detectives that, hey, when you say you wear a hole, wear holes in your shoes back in the day. Yeah, you did, because you were out. We, we didn't have cell phones that, you know, with uh, programs on them to pull up a person's picture in a tenth of a second or their criminal record. Or where you could, you know, ping their phone and find out where no, they were. No, non-existent. Non-existent. About the most advanced thing we had at the time was a Coles directory, which is a book that weighs about 70 pounds. It's a reverse phone directory. What is a book? It's just this gigantic thing. It looks like a looks like two phone books stacked on top of each other. Mm. And the phone numbers were listed by address. So you could look up a building and you would see who lives there and their phone numbers and stuff. And this was something that you couldn't get unless you were Well, uh, no, no. Most of the squads had those. Well, we had those, but that was about as technological. But police, I mean, you wouldn't a normal citizen. No, not would. a normal citizen. Yeah. Um and I laugh. I said, you know, in Brooklyn if I wanted to get a guy's rap sheet and his most recent arrest photo, I filled out two forms. I then got in the car. I drove to police headquarters. I would stand online. I would give them my request. Now it's probably 11 o'clock in the morning. So you go to Chinatown. You have a nice lunch. You come back. <laughs> you stand on another line. And then now it's like 2 o'clock in the afternoon before you finally get the stuff that you requested. This is to get two Just to get like a photo and a, and a rap sheet. And then you would drive your ass back to Brooklyn. You got to remember. And that's a day. That's, that's damn a near day. a day. Yeah. To you, do you, that, you when fill I fill out the forms, you go downtown, you you stand on a line, you hand them to a person. Correct. You go have your you know frog sandwich in Chinatown. You come back, you pick up the photos, then you go back to Brooklyn, and it's it's got and it's mid afternoon, mid afternoon to get two photos. That's unbelievable. And, and now, when I left the detective, when I retired this year, I would take out my handy dandy phone, punch in a name. It was one stop shopping. They they got it right this time around with the phones. One-stop shopping and name, rap sheet, I mean, just a, a huge amount of information. It's, uh, this isn't Google, I'm assuming. No, 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 no. This is strictly tied into the police department's computer system. The database they have there, and they have a lot of information. And you are and you have a code that makes yeah, well, unfortunately, if you though, lose your phone, though, I mean, is that a big deal? Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> the people lose them. Right. But they can immediately... The police department could track the phones. They could immediately kill the phone. Gotcha. Um, But, you know, 
what became a pain in the ass towards the end, if you're at, especially if you're at a crime scene or whatever. And now everybody's running names. We keep the information, you know, to the detectives now. Yeah, you know, people, uniform bosses are showing you, oh, look at this guy, look at that guy. Let's keep it simple so you, you know, especially when you're doing midnights. Mm-hmm. When it's me, maybe two or three detectives. You know, I have, this is it. This is the cavalry. This is all that's coming here. Wow. Um, you and two or three detectives for New York City? Well, for, for Manhattan. Manhattan, south of 59th Street. We could Jesus call on Christ. other, you could call on Manhattan North Night Watch to come down and help us. Uh, if it was a big case or really involved, you can get other Night Watch units from across the city. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a detective and you're swamped, okay, imagine that. What do you? What is it that you've got going? I mean, obviously a lot of crime, but the detective work in it. Well, here's the, the difference with my detective days is that we didn't we didn't have the checklist back then. We you knew what you people told you what to do. You knew what to do. Mm. They use checklist now, um, and not a bad idea that when the checklist first started. No, when you well, I don't even know what a checklist. It is. was just a checklist. They, they had the twelve. Oh, uh, things you're the supposed mandatory to do. 12, things that you should do. And they were designed for heavy cases. Mm-hmm. They have checklists now for checklists on top of checklists mm-hmm. where on the most routine of cases, you, you, you're going through these checklists and everything's got to be put into the system. you got to type this shit up and you're turning out volumes on pettit larceny cases. Oh, you're exhausting me just hearing about this. Yeah, yeah. it's... Every, every case, pettit larceny. Yeah, the, the, the paperwork now, it was oh, the paperwork was always a problem. It was a lot. And especially we did everything on IBM Selectrics, you know, and uh, <laughs> carbon paper. And <laughs> carbon paper, oh, my God. I remember carbon paper. Yeah. I mean, not as a detective, but I, I mean, I saw the shit. It, it, but nobody carried on about the nonsense. The bosses would look at your case folders. What do you have the, the, the important stuff in there? They'd sign off on it. Yeah. There was also a different mindset, especially in a violent command where you had a lot of homicides. Uh, there was an older sergeant who, my, one of my first days there, called me in. And he says, uh, young man, sit down. And this guy was a soft-spoken, nice man, dapper dresser, got promoted very late in his career. And he says, he asked, he asked me if I knew about the clearance rate and what was expected of me and this and that. And he closed out the conversation with me. He says, see that case folder there? I says, yeah, my case folder. With various in sundry cases in either aggravated harassments, maybe a burglary or just assaults. And this was the mindset of the older guys. He said to me, he said, that's all type of practice. He says, 90% of that in there is bullshit. He says, you see that wall over there with those brown folders? These were the homicide case folders. He says, that's what you're here for. He says, every one of those folders was a homicide victim. He says, keep that up front. That's what you're here for. And uh, that's the ultimate uh, crime, I guess, murder, right? And it's the important one, especially in a place like that. A lot of these homicides are tied into each other. You know, you would go to a homicide and look at a guy and say, 
do I know this guy from? And then somebody else will come over and say, geez, that guy looks familiar. And be like, oh, man, that's the guy we're looking for from homicide number 34. Well, homicide number 34 perpetrator is now homicide number 68 in the precinct. You know, it happened frequently. Really? Or you would get a phone call. And you just close out the case then? No, what? no. These cases stayed open. Because, uh, you know, they're a suspect. Yeah, well, sometimes you couldn't find them. Uh, uh, well, I mean, if you, if you find the killer, the suspected killer dead. Yeah, which we, we used to call it exceptional clearance. It's uh, abated by death, so to speak. Um, but you would, or you would get a call. You're sitting there doing your work, and the phone would ring. It would be a guy from another precinct. And they say... Hey, you know this guy, uh, Joe Jones over here? I have no idea who you're talking about. And he says, well, your business card's in his pocket. And I'd be like, really? I says, let me guess. He's dead? And he goes, yeah, he's dead. I says, all right, let me go look. And, you, you know, and you would go through your notes. Because you would hand out a lot of business cards. You'd talk to a lot of people. And... Uh, some of these people would wind up dead. Uh, interesting way of life. Mm-hmm. Well, we're, we, we just we just wrapped up over an hour here, and uh, I want to talk to you about uh, another guy on the next episode. Devernon Legrand is the man's name, aka the Reverend, serial killer in New York City. Very bad guy. Very bad guy. Very storied history within the seventy-seven precinct. 12 plus victims, it says. 1963 to 1976, he was asked yes. for that. Yeah. I remember when I first got to Brooklyn, riding around one of the guys, and the guy said to me, he says, oh, see that house over there? Hold on. We got to wait, Pete. <laughs> Next episode. Oh, okay. <laughs> but that's a good teaser. And uh, I really... I, I dealt with the spawn of Devernon Legrand. Spawn of the Reverend. And there was oh, a lot of Jesus. it. Jesus. Right? Devil's spawn. Quite a few of them. Uh, we will uh, we'll, we'll pick it up on the on the next one. Hope you guys can make it. And uh, hey, Pete, Lucio, uh, you know, to have a, a forty-year NYPD detective here is truly a treat and an honor. Thank you for joining. Me. Glad to be here, Pat. All right, and thank you for listening to New York City Crime Report. Is it over?